Our sermon text today is in Exodus, once again, Exodus 20, verse 14, one verse, uh, the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments, the seventh one, but it's verse 14 of chapter 20. There God said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for uh, giving us your word as a light to our feet, that we might know where to walk. For we have uh, been those who uh, corrupt our ways, uh, who uh, are dependent upon you to straighten out our path. Uh, We depend upon your mercy and grace both to forgive our sins and also to beat them down underneath our feet, that we might live in accordance with your word. And so we ask that you would teach us and so preserve us as your children, uh, that we might walk in the way of life and in a way that is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As with the other commandments, the seventh commandment has a narrow meaning, and a broad meaning. Uh, The narrow meaning is that it forbids adultery, that is, sexual relations between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Do not commit adultery. Uh, But this assumes and points to God's ordinance of marriage and his intended design for sex. Thus, the broad meaning or principle of the seventh commandment is that God's design and will for sex and marriage ought to be honored, and all violations of it are forbidden. Our shorter catechism puts it this way. The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. It uses a word that you might not use every day, uh, chastity or chaste, Uh, And it's a good word. Uh, Chastity refers to sexual purity. That is the state or practice of refraining from from all unlawful sexual activity. Uh, Chastity would then include both abstinence for the unmarried and faithfulness for the married. All of us are called to be chaste, to uh, preserve our own and our neighbor's chastity. Now, a common attitude towards sex today is that your body is your stuff, uh, and you can do whatever you want with it, as long as you don't hurt other people. Now, that perspective usually underestimates what it means to hurt another person. Uh, Immoral practices often seem harmless for a time, but do cause hurt in the end. Uh, But the more important point is that uh, God is sovereign over how you use your body. You do have a responsibility for your body, uh, but God as sovereignty. Uh, He sets the rules. He has a right to uh, command you uh, what to do with it because he is your maker. And to begin with, your body is not just stuff. Uh, It's not simply just stuff. It's actually important. And one reason why the biblical ethic is important is because it takes the body seriously. It is you. It's not all of you, but your body is you. How you use it is important. Uh, But But also, you did not make yourself. Uh, God has made you and your body and tells you how to use it. 
and sexual immorality is rebellion against his design and his law. In 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is describing reasons to flee sexual immorality, he says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He appeals to the design, to the purpose. It's meant to serve God, not for sexual immorality. God designed it. He sets the rules. You are meant to serve your maker in accord with his good design. Now, not only is disobedience rebellion, uh, but it's also foolish and harmful. It's good to live in accordance with your design, just as it's good for a fish to live in water, right? Much better than a fish trying to live out of water. When something you make, imagine something that you made, some creation of yours. If it malfunctions, it's usually to the harm of that creation and to the harm of things around it. If the chair breaks, the chair is getting broken and you might fall and hurt yourself. Departure from God's design and order not only invokes God's judgment, but it also causes damage to yourself, to others, and to society. But all that's secondary. Uh, The Lord's rights and and authority is preeminent. And as Christians, you have all the more reason to keep this commandment. Remember how the Ten Commandments began. I'm the Lord. I'm your God. I'm your Redeemer. That is, the one who brought you out of bondage. Therefore, you should keep all these commandments. As Christians, you have even more reason. If God has saved you, he saved you body and soul. He doesn't just save your soul. He saves your body. He saves you. And he will raise your body to glory on the last day. Paul says not only is your body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. How is the Lord for your body? Well, he came to save you, to save even your body, and he'll raise it up on the last day to glory. As Paul says in Romans, you should offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God and to use them as instruments of righteousness, just as you formerly used them as instruments for sin. If God has saved you, you are also then not your own. For Christ has bought you with his most precious blood. Therefore glorify God in your body. Paul also says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. You, know, you, you body and soul, are, are, are a member of Christ's body. And Christ's body ought to be kept holy and not mixed up with sexual immorality. He also then appeals to the work of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. A temple ought to be kept holy. You ought to keep your bodies holy and flee from sexual immorality, because sexual sin is unique in that it is a sin against your own body, as he appeals in in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 19. And so, As creatures of God and all the more as those saved by Christ, you have reason to flee from sexual immorality, but to live in accord with God's law, God's good design. So first I want to look at what the the institution that is presumed by this commandment, that is of marriage, uh, and then to look at the estate of singleness, then to look at uh, the violations of God's law, the sexual immorality, and then to conclude on, on a note of, of spiritual adultery, how this uh, marriage or violation of marriage is used as an analogy for, for Christ and his church. Uh, first of all, though, consider marriage. 
And the foundation for this commandment, as with so many, or maybe all these commandments, can be found in the book of Genesis. You can go back to Genesis 2. You don't need to turn there at the moment, but you know, hopefully we'll remember that God created man and then woman out of man and brought them together in a marriage, a ideal marriage, that is, a marriage that would be a type and model for all marriages to come. He created the institution there. As Jesus explains that passage, God puts the man and woman together in marriage so that they are one flesh, and therefore no creature has a right to put them asunder. God unites the two of them into one flesh, and it's not a a casual or temporary union, but a one with a bond that binds them together. God created marriage as a one-flesh union of a man and a woman, and he designed sexual union for marriage alone. Becoming one flesh doesn't only refer to sexual union, but it at least means that. Paul uses that term, one flesh, in 1 Corinthians 6 to describe sexual relations. But he also uses it to point out that when an unmarried man and woman become one flesh sexually, it does not create a marriage. Uh, Rather, it is sexual immorality. Uh, Sexual union is marriage behavior that belongs in a marriage. Don't do married things with people that you're not married to. Uh, Outside of that context, it is immoral. The seventh commandment forbids violating the marriage bond, and it supports marriage as a good uh, institution of God. But marriage is a bond. It's a covenant. We didn't just make that up. The Bible describes it as a covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 14 through 16, we, we see several truths about marriage. I'll read, I'll read those verses. Matthew, sorry, Malachi 2, verse 14. God is rebuking men who had, uh, who had, forsaken, divorced their wives, and married pagan women. First, he rebukes them for marrying pagan women, but then he rebukes them for for putting away their wives. And he says he's not listening to their worship because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So learn first, marriage is a covenant. That is a bond created by solemn oaths before God and human witnesses, pledging both the man and woman to mutual and exclusive fidelity. Uh, Marriage is not created by a sexual relationship or by living together or even by wedding plans, but by a covenant. Second point to notice is that God is a witness to this covenant. He holds them both accountable. Uh, He is invoked by this oath, by these vows. Uh, Thirdly, notice that this covenant creates companions who share life together. She's described not only as your wife by covenant, but your companion. Uh, That husband and wife ought to be companions who share their lives together and who are uh, friends with one another. Nothing less than friends, but more than friends. Verse 15, he goes on to say, Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Notice, fourthly then, fourth point here, is that God makes the two of them one, which we already got from Genesis. 
uh, but that's reaffirmed here as well. God is the one who makes them one. And then the fifth point is that God seeks from them godly offspring. That is one end of marriage, both to have legitimate offspring and then uh, to have godly offspring, to raise up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to raise up a, a holy seed for the future of the church. Um, verse 16 goes on to say, for the Lord, sorry, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Divorce without just cause is treachery, is violence, it's displeasing to God. And nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate can give grounds for a legitimate divorce. This, that's the sixth point, all right? Uh, divorce, except for maybe a few exceptions, is treachery, is violence. Even when legitimate, it's because it's already been violated grievously. The seventh point is his application then. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You are bound together by covenant to be companions one for another. God has made you one. He's been a witness to you. So keep watch over yourselves. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. In this marriage covenant, husband and wife are bound to be sexually intimate with each other and only each other, being loving and faithful to the other until death parts them. Under the fifth commandment, I spoke of their respective duties, their unique duties that they owe one to another. Uh, but here let me emphasize the duties they have in common. Both of them ought to love the other, to show their affection to one another, and to bear with one another with patience. Each should be faithful to the other, ready to be helpful, uh, to be dependable and trustworthy. As one flesh, they ought not to be rivals to one another. The head and the arm and you know, the body parts are not to be rivals because they're one. They're on the same team. They are one organism. And so, the husband and the wife ought to see the other as part of themselves, sharing a concern for the other's reputation and well-being as their own. They ought to delight in one another, showing what older writers called due benevolence to one another, being intoxicated in each other's love. Paul teaches quite frankly on that in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, and stresses that abstinence within marriage is dangerous and gives opportunity for the devil Perhaps you could refrain for prayer by mutual consent for a limited time, like a fast. I think the Puritans like Googe are right in seeing two other times of refraining in marriage for mercy, as when the other person is weak by sickness or pain or injury, and for modesty, as during a woman's period. But generally speaking, lovemaking ought to be normal and regular, not a rare thing on an occasional basis. Husband and wife should share in common with each other not only their bodies, but their goods, their labors, their lives, their counsels, their prayers. They are one. Love and loyalty and harmony between husband and wife is a tremendous blessing. Even the pagans recognized that. Uh, Homer's Odysseus exclaimed, 
No finer, greater gift in the world than that when man and woman possess their home, two minds, two hearts that work as one, despair to their enemies and a joy to all their friends. And you even see that worked out in that story that is told. But something that even the pagans recognize, as indeed marriage has existed and persisted despite various distortions and corruptions, as a creation ordinance uh, intended for man's good. We should all then hold marriage in honor. That's what uh, Hebrews 13.4 says. Let marriage be held in honor by all. It is a good ordinance of God and ought to therefore be kept undefiled uh, by unfaithfulness or adultery. It's a good and wise ordinance of God for his glory and our good. Marriage is not foolproof. It does not elevate one in the kingdom of God, but it is a blessing and provision of God to be treasured and carefully preserved. Thus far on marriage. But secondly, there are, of course, people who are not married. There's the estate of singleness, which I, as I was thinking about it, obviously covers a very wide spectrum of different situations of people who are not married. But Paul speaks of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, and there he speaks both of the benefits of singleness and the gift of singleness. And some people confuse the two today as you speak about it. Uh, if they say the gift of singleness, sometimes they're talking about the benefits of singleness, uh, but the gift of, that is described by Paul is really the gift of being fitted for singleness. Um, the larger catechism calls it the gift of continency, an older word for, for self-control. The premise of his argument there in 1 Corinthians 7 is that the only legitimate outlet for sexual desire is in marriage. And so singleness is a state of sexual abstinence. Uh, the person who becomes one flesh with another outside of marriage commits sexual immorality. But Paul commends singleness, uh, but only if sexual passions are restrained. That desire can only be satisfied in marriage with a spouse. He he mentions some benefits of singleness, and because of them, and in view of the present distress that they were facing in that context, Paul recommended that those who are gifted for singleness remain unmarried and serve the Lord in that condition. Although he did not forbid even them from marrying, Uh, They could do so, uh, but he thought it would be good, in their case, uh, to not marry. But he wrote that singles who lacked the gift of continency, who burn with passion, should marry. Um, The general principle that he taught at the beginning of the chapter was that, quote, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Paul gives similar directions in 1 Timothy 5 regarding older and younger widows. Uh, He directed the younger widows to marry, uh, to bear children, to manage their households. The issue came up in Jesus' ministry, too. After his teaching on marriage and how firm a bond it is, the disciples said, it is better not to marry. But Jesus replied to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. Only those who have this gift of being fitted for that circumstance Uh, can receive this saying that it's better not to marry. It's only better for them. If you are not gifted for singleness, then it is not to your overall advantage to remain single. If you are, in other words, if you're not gifted for singleness, then you ought to prepare for marriage and when ready, pursue it, choosing a spouse 
with wisdom. If you are gifted for singleness, which that gift can come and go, it's not like something fixed all of your life, but if you are gifted for singleness, you are free to marry or not, uh, using wisdom uh, to decide that question. But what about even those who desire marriage but haven't found a spouse or are still preparing for it? Well, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 is still relevant uh, for them. You can serve the Lord right now, whether you're married or not. Both respect to marriage and to many other things, like work, it's good to try to improve your situation. You can seek out a, a spouse, you can try to get a better job, you can get a better work situation. It's, it's good to do that, but don't let that stop you from serving the Lord where you are in the meantime. There's two heirs, that of passivity and that of anxiety. It's good and not bad to desire marriage, to prepare for it, and to seek it. But as you do your part, seek the Lord's blessing upon your efforts and be content with his provision. If you're not supposed to be anxious about what you will eat or drink, things that are necessary for your life, should you be anxious about who you will marry? And so there is an estate of singleness, which does require sexual abstinence, but is a place in which one may serve the Lord with these instructions in mind. Thirdly, and the less happy part to talk about, is that of violations of God's law, sexual immorality. The commandment forbids adultery and, by extension, all sexual immorality, including all sexual activity outside God's ordinance of marriage. It's wrong when sexual desire is satisfied with another person without the two being married to each other. And that's aggravated when you add things to that that are bad, as if for example, it's bad enough when two unmarried people commit fornication, but then if one of them is married, that makes it worse, because now it's not just the misuse of sex, but rather also a covenant-breaking treachery. And that's why we come up with all these different names of different sexual sins that are aggravations, that make it worse. Some sins are worse than others, although they're all bad, and they're all deserving of God's judgment. The depravity of man has found many ways to twist something good and put it to sinful use. The Bible forbids fornication, a name we give to sex between unmarried people, uh, adultery, rape, incest, bestiality, homosexuality. The Bible is quite detailed in addressing these sins in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and 1 Corinthians. Jesus also said that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Uh, in other words, the divorce in that case was not legitimate, and so he was still bound to his wife, so his remarriage uh, is a case of adultery, unfaithfulness to his wife. As with all the commandments, the seventh commandment must be observed both internally and externally. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So spouses, those who are married, ought to be faithful to each other in their desires as well as in their actions, taking this delight in each other alone. And all of you, you must not desire your neighbor's spouse. We'll actually kind of get to that in the 10th commandment too. That person is off limits. 
And you must not yearn for any unlawful sexual relations. The desire for sin is sin. No one should begin to satisfy their sexual desire outside of marriage by stimulating it with the lustful sight or imagination of another. We must not have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, as the false teachers described in Second Peter. But rather, we must be watchful over our senses and learn to see and treat others in purity. Now, heterosexual desire is a good thing, not bad in itself, although it's hard to control in our fallen state. It's also not wrong simply to notice another person's beauty, and an unmarried person seeking marriage can certainly desire to be married to another unmarried person and feel attraction to that person, but that desire should not be stirred up prematurely, and it must only be satisfied in marriage. Let me read a quote from John Murray, uh, a, a quote that seeks to be careful in, in making these distinction. He says, The line of demarcation between virtue and vice is not a chasm, but a razor's edge. Sex desire is not wrong, and Jesus does not say so. To cast any aspersion on sex desire is to impugn the integrity of the Creator and of His creation. Furthermore, it is not wrong to desire to satisfy sex desire and impulse in the way God has ordained. Indeed, sex desire is one of the considerations which induce men and women to marry. The scripture fully recognizes the propriety of that motive and commends marriage as the honorable and necessary outlet for sex impulse. What is wrong is the earliest and most rudimentary desire to satisfy the impulse to the sex act outside the estate of matrimony. It is not wrong to desire the sex act with the person who may be contemplated as spouse if and when the estate of matrimony will have been entered upon with him or her, but the desire for the sex act outside that divinely instituted and strictly guarded sanctuary which God has reserved for the man and his wife alone is wrong, and it is from this fountain of desire that proceed all the evils by which the sanctity of sex is desecrated. One must preserve this commandment without casting aspersion upon God's creation, but guarding oneself both internally and externally to conform to his design. The seventh commandment also applies to your gestures and your clothing, to avoid wanton looks, shameless behavior, or immodest apparel. In other words, avoid being like the woman in Proverbs 7. Rather, you're called to conduct yourself with purity and propriety with respectfulness towards others and decorum, with moderation and modesty. All good words to bring back into your vocabulary if you don't have them yet. Modesty is a virtue. Uh, It extends both to behavior and clothing, for men and for women. Uh, But 1 Timothy 2, Paul speaks of it with reference to women's clothing. Uh, The Greek word for modesty refers to a sense of shame that keeps you from being shameless. Among other things, modest clothing would not be overly revealing. Uh, One purpose of clothing is to cover what cannot decently be shown or left bare in public without shame. In general, remember that, as with all these commandments, to think of yourself and your neighbor, to do your part to preserve your own and your neighbor's chastity. You can't blame your sins on others, but neither should you be careless about your impact on others. Rather, the church, 
each one of us should seek to promote an atmosphere of purity among the brotherhood of the saints, treat one another as brothers and sisters in all purity, that will contrast with the atmosphere of immorality that is all too prevalent in our culture. The last point I want to look at is that of spiritual adultery or faithfulness. And by spiritual, I mean with respect to our relationship with God. God's covenant with us is compared to a marriage covenant. Christ and the church is compared to a husband and wife. You find this in the prophets like Jeremiah. You find it in the epistles of Paul. Christ loves the church as his bride. This analogy teaches that the church and all its members need to be faithful to him. The church must submit to Christ, its head and savior. The church must be devoted in love to Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That is what Paul desired. That's what we should desire, pure and sincere devotion to Christ. The analogy teaches that idolatry and apostasy is spiritual adultery. You could look up uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 3 for an example of this, uh, or other places. Um, It vividly, uh, places like Ezekiel 16, for example, vividly portrays the covenant treachery that is involved in forsaking the Lord or turning away to other gods. Every kind of sin is some degree of unfaithfulness to Christ, and apostasy in particular is like the act of adultery, leading to a divorce from the living God. One must embrace Christ by faith and to hold fast to that faith. This analogy also teaches that the grace of God, it also teaches the grace of God towards sinners. All have sinned against God and are in a state of alienation from Him unless his grace intervenes. God's grace in receiving sinners is described in terms of forgiving an unfaithful wife who repents. Jeremiah 3's description of spiritual adultery is followed by an appeal to apostate Israel and apostate Judah to return to the Lord in repentance and to be forgiven and embraced. In Hosea, this analogy is used for God's relationship with Israel, and it's even played out in the life of the prophet Hosea as a symbol for the people. Although the people was judged for their apostasy, God would return to speak tenderly to them, to allure them, to court them, if you will, and they would answer as a faithful bride, as in the days of her youth. Christ saves his church, he sanctifies his bride, he cleanses her, he adorns her with holiness, This is the grace of God that we can trust in. So, in conclusion, God is gracious and he is faithful. He keeps covenant without fail. May his people imitate him. Do not be faithless to your God or to your spouse, but preserve your own and your neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. For as Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Join with me in prayer.
Dear God, we give thanks to you for your mercy in receiving us who had despised you and broken that covenant at creation and who have been received back by your grace. We ask that you would uh, preserve us and uh, to continue that work that you have begun us as you have promised that uh, you would uh, bring all your people to this sincere devotion uh, to you, and so that in our relationships with one another, we might be pure and holy, uh, to live in accord with your good design and law, that your church might be salt and light in a world full of corruption, uh, that all men might see and give glory to you, our God and Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.